before I pray and we get into scriptures this morning, just a um, Chris Houston slipped me an encouraging note. Um, you all, we had the MASH offering last week for Operation Christmas Child. Thanks to your generosity, we now have $1,114.03 to pack 50 boxes for kids. So praise the Lord for that. That's encouraging. So kids, get those working boots on. We've got a lot of boxes to pack, but that'll be tremendous. And thank you kids for your, your excitement. We want you to be um, filled with a spirit of generosity and giving just like Jesus and to, f- to think that the things that you're going to pack and send overseas are going to go to needy children um, who will get to wake up with the gifts that you have packed. And parents, thanks for your generosity in, supply, in supplying the needs and the finances to make that possible. Well, we're continuing in our uh, section by section, verse by verse, uh, through John's letter, first letter. John is Jesus' best friend, and he's writing to us that we might know that we're children of God. He's trying to lay out in this letter what the signs of the saved are, are. and he circles back again and again to three key signs. There's a doctrinal sign, which is what we believe about who Jesus is, which he's going to deal with today in our text in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. There's a moral sign which is an obedience to Jesus. And then there's a relational or social sign, which is all about our love for other Christians. So those three are the, those three signs he circles back to again and again. And this morning, just to orient you where John is in his thinking, we concluded last week's sermon at the end of chapter 3 with uh, verse 23. It says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And so this week in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he's going to take the first half of that. He's going to talk about what it means to believe in Jesus and who Jesus is. And then next week, Lord willing, when we come back to chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, he's going to talk about love for one another again. So um, those of you who... who, who uh, uh, know me, uh, newsflash, um, I am not a Christian rapper in my spare time. I know some of you all, like, had me fooled, you know. Um, I'm not a Christian rapper, but I, I know a good one when I hear one. And Shy Lin is a good Christian rapper, and he's got a song called False Teachers that illustrates well the text that John's going to teach us this morning in First John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. So I'm going to give you his lyrics. This is Shylin, False Teachers. He says, let me begin while there's still ink left in my pen. I'm set to contend for truth you can bet will offend. Deception within the church, man, who's letting them in? We talked about this years ago, let's address it again. And I ain't really trying to start beef, but some who claim to be part of the sheep have some sharp teeth. And cats get mean when you criticize them, but Jesus told us, Matthew 7, 16, we can recognize them. And God forbid that for the love of some fans, I keep quiet and watch them die with their blood on my hands. So there's nothing left for me to do except to speak to you in the spirit of Jude 3 and 2 Peter 2. And I know that some will label me a Pharisee because today the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. I'll dare to be specific and drop some clarity on the popularity of the gospel of prosperity. Turn off TBN. That channel's overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. Ungodly and wicked, ask yourself, how can they not be convicted, treating Jesus like a lottery ticket? 
And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type because some of their statements are right? That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. And I hear it all the time when they speak on the block. Even unbelievers are shocked how they're fleecing the flock. It should be obvious then, yet I'll explain why it's sin. Peep the Bible. It's in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. It talks about how the desire for riches has left many souls on fire in stitches, mired in ditches. Tell me, who would teach you to pursue as a goal the very thing the Bible says will ruin your soul? Yet they're encouraging the love of money to make it worse. They've exported this garbage into other countries. My heart breaks even now as I'm rhyming. You want to know what all false teachers have in common? It's called selfism, the fastest growing religion. They dress it up and call it Christian. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, that he's not your God, money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is he came to redeem us from sin. And that is a message forever, I'll yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. That's Shai Lin. And uh, he illustrates well and captures the heart, I think, of John's burden in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Because in these verses, John is all about instructing us and raising our awareness to the reality of false teaching in the world and equipping us with how to deal with it. This is how he brackets the passage. You notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So his purpose in this section is to help us to identify what the spirit of truth is and what the spirit of error is, and then equip us to test the spirits. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first point, the caution against accepting false teaching. The caution against accepting false teaching. Notice how John begins. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe In other words, refuse to believe everything you hear. Don't be gullible. Don't be a sitting duck for false teaching. Be discerning. Sometimes, as in this case, John is saying, you know what? Unbelief is a greater mark of spiritual maturity than belief. Sometimes, unbelief is a greater sign of virtue than belief especially when it comes to false teaching. Not true teaching, but definitely false teaching. C.S. Lewis says, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones that are being argued. They're the ones being assumed. See, culture exerts its greatest influence. False teaching exerts its greatest influence in what it presents as normal. And that's why we are so prone to, as a human race, to fall prey to it. Because it's normal. It's assumed. It's not argued. And that's why John says, don't believe every spirit. Don't be gullible. Don't be easily influenced. So he says, instead of not believing every spirit, notice verse 1, he says, but test, test, test the spirits. This is how how we escape the gullibility of belief in false teaching. We test the spirits. To test something means to put it under rigorous scrutiny to determine its genuineness. 
We subject it to scrutiny. We subject it to evaluation. We subject it to God's word to verify its authenticity, to test its metal, to see if it's genuine. And notice, you can't see this in your English translation, but the verbs do not believe and test are in the plural. John intends this to be for all of us. This is not just a unique calling of pastors. This is the unique calling of the church. Every Christian is, to, is responsible to test all teaching that they are exposed to, which is all the time, nonstop, no matter where you get it from. If it comes across your Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, your, on your iPhone, across computer, on the television, in a book, in a magazine, in an article, wherever you're hearing it, you're called to test it. You're called to evaluate it. You're called to not be a passive recipient. And again, this is why the verbs translated believe and test are verbs that require continuous action and vigilance. This is not a one-time deal. The point that John's trying to make is there are, there's no standing still. The life of this world is not a lake. It's a river. Don't think of life in this world like a lake that you can just basically sit in the middle of and generally stay in the same place. Life in this world is a river. It's flowing downward. If you stand still, if you are passive, if you refuse to test and engage in this process, you will drift. You will float away from Christ. John Piper says, this is not a hard swimming stroke to learn. The only thing that keeps us from swimming against sinful ideas is not the difficulty of the stroke, but our sinful desire to go with the flow. So we cannot go with the flow. We must be cautioned against accepting false teaching. And that's what John is doing in these first few verses. Don't believe every spirit. Test them we got to do this together, and we have to do it continually. Second point, the criteria for evaluating false teaching. So if that's the call, if that's the caution, if that's what we're supposed to do, not believe every spirit, test the spirits, discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error, how? How do we do it? Well, that's what John spends most of the middle part of this text explaining to us exactly how to do that. How do we spot false teaching? How do we spot false teachers? How do we test the spirits? How do we discern truth from error? Before we get into his three criteria, a word of caution. There are two ditches to avoid. And I'm going to give you some dog metaphors, so no offense to dog lovers. All right, They're not meant to be uh, ironclad illustrations. There's two ditches to avoid. One is being the watchdog, and second is being the lapdog. Okay? The watchdog is someone who is suspicious, so suspicious that they believe nothing. They will believe nothing. They're just cynical and arrogant and cold and individualistically persuaded and very unpersuadable. This is not the kind of posture that John is calling us to adopt. He's not saying, be hard, be difficult to persuade, be immovable, be proud. No, don't be barking. There are some Christians that make a living at barking and gnawing off the legs of other Christians. 
Get on the internet. It's terrible. It's awful the way Christians speak to each other. They feel like they're the watchdog of the evangelical universe. And social media has given them a louder megaphone. And they just feel like they live off the clicks and the please give me money to my PayPal account so I can continue to equip the church to be discerning. Bogus. Bogus ministry. Waste of time. What are you doing? You're going to account to Jesus for all the ways you malign his children. They feel like anytime anybody is in error about anything, they got to bark about it. That's not your call. You're contentious. You're quarrelsome. You're divisive. That's sinful. That's those attitudes. John is not calling us to be quarrelsome. He's not calling us to be divisive. He's not calling us to bark every time we don't agree with somebody. But neither is he calling us to be a lap dog. You know what I'm envisioning here? Just that sweet dog that just lays around, doesn't cause any problems, lets anybody step around in the house. An intruder could come in and that dog's just going to let him in. Probably point him to the food. So sweet and amiable and cheerful and easy to be around. This is the superstition which believes everything. Well, they've got a good heart. Well, I mean, they can't be that bad. I mean, it's just our perspective. I mean, who are we to judge what somebody else thinks about Scripture? We're all trying to figure it out ourselves. He doesn't want you to adopt that attitude either. We're not to be the watchdog that's constantly barking or the lap dog that just takes anything. Neither of those is John's posture. Rather, his posture is for us to be engaged, thoughtful, humble, prayerful, testers of teaching so that we hold fast to what is true and reject what is evil. But we do that in a manner that is very Christian consistently. So what is that manner? What does that Christian approach look like? He's going to give us three things. This is the criteria for evaluating false teaching. And here's the first criteria. Where does the teaching originate? Where does it come from? Where is the teaching source? Where are, what's giving birth to those ideas? That's where we start. That's how we discern false teaching. Notice again, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice he says in verse 1, every spirit, test the spirits. See, John recognizes that the world is fundamentally filled and governed by spiritual reality. It is to recognize that there are contrary spirits There are operating principles and operating worldviews that are going on in the world, and not all of them are from God. This is the fun. So, where does it originate? What spirit is giving birth to these ideas? And is it the spirit of God, or is it the spirit of Antichrist, of error? And notice he says there are many, many, many of those spirits at work in the world. Many. In verse 1, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So these are people, right? These are people. And he says they've gone out into the world, which means they've left the fellowship of Christians, but are now speaking to that fellowship as though they were the true Christians. So these false prophets have gone out into the world, but notice 
What is animating these false prophets? Look at verse 3. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John says behind every prophet, behind every proclamation, behind every teaching, there is an energizing, animating spirit. And that spirit either comes from Christ or it comes from Antichrist. And that's not to, not to say that there is one Christ. Well, there is one Christ. But it's not to say that just because there is one Christ, there is one Antichrist. He's talking about a spiritual reality of anti-Christian thinking. He says there's basically two streams. There's a Christian stream, and then there's an anti-Christian stream. There's a Christ orientation, and there's an anti-Christ orientation. He says ideas have consequences and those ideas have spiritual origins. They're, de- they're deriving themselves from spirits. Now, that's not to say that every anti-Christian idea has a devil attached to it and that there's all kinds of devils overseeing various worldviews. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that there is an anti-Christian real influence in the world. Satan, emiss- all of his emissaries, all of his allies, all the fallen angels operating in the world, giving birth to ideas, ideologies, ways of thinking, ways of behaving, ways of living, ways of normalizing life. And he's masquerading themselves as angels of light. They're trying to advance enlightenment. This is the way a higher human being thinks. This is the progress that we're after. This is the way we're trying to lead people astray from God by helping them think and believe that what they're hearing is normal. It's just normal. Don't break, don't get out of the pack. Don't break the herd. Just embrace it because it's what everybody else thinks. That's his goal. Keep you in the cultural box. Keep you thinking and in league with the majority of the culture. Whatever the culture is thinking, get on board. If not, we will find ways to persecute you. We'll find ways to ostracize you. We will find ways to push you to the margins. We'll find ways, if we can, to send you to jail, to shut your business down, to keep you quiet. So where does the teaching originate? Brothers and sisters, Friends, young people, this is the question you got to ask. Where's that coming from? Whose voice does that sound like? Does it sound like Christ or does it sound like it's got a hiss attached to it? Does it sound like it's got some serpent in it? So that's what you have to ask. Where does the teaching originate? Number two, you have to ask, what does the teaching exalt What does the teaching exalt? Look at verse 2. By this, by this criteria, John says, you know the Spirit of God. So you want to know where the Spirit of God is speaking? Here's the criteria. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So he makes it very, very simple. What is the teaching seeking to exalt? Or more specifically, who? 
Is it seeking to exalt Christ? Or is it seeking to exalt something else? Does, to what does the teaching call you to allegiance? Does it call you to allegiance to Christ? Or does it call you to allegiance to yourself or something else? According to John, the best way to spot the truth is to determine what the person thinks about Jesus. There's the, he's the filter because he is truth. Whether we agree with him or not, he is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So he's the filter. But here's the problem. This is increasingly challenging when a large percentage of people don't know who the real Jesus is. Ligonier Ministries recently conducted a survey that they throw out every two years. They did one in 2014 and 2016, and they recently did it in 2018. That's called the State of Theology. And what they do is they send this out to 3,000 people through LifeWay Research to get a good survey. It includes both evangelical Christians and those who wouldn't affiliate with as, as a Christian. And so it, and it asks you to identify yourself along those lines. But here's, here's what the survey this year revealed, just done a couple of months ago, reveals this year about the state of theology among evangelicals in America on the doctrine of Christ. 78%, 78%, almost eight out of 10 evangelicals agreed with this statement. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. They don't know who Jesus Christ is. 78% of people who claim to be Christians don't know who Christ is. Shame on our churches. You have one job. Get Christ right. And they didn't. And this is one view. This is... This is a view of Jesus that's just one among many. It's no surprise that they don't get it right because there are so many people who don't get him right. Liberal Christians don't get him right because they say that Jesus was merely a good man. Jehovah's Witnesses don't get Jesus right because they say Jesus was merely Michael the archangel who was a created being that became a man, which 78% of evangelicals embrace. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods, and he was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. Unitarian Universalists teach that Jesus was not God, but rather essentially an incarnation of Mr. Rogers, a great man to be respected solely for his teaching, love, justice, and healing. New Age philosophy, reflected by comments from Deepak Chopra when he told Larry King, quote, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to, end quote. Or Scientology, Jesus is an implant forced upon a thetan about a million years ago. Or Freemasonry, which intentionally omits the name Jesus in their public scripture readings, while Levi Dowling said Jesus underwent seven degrees of initiation, which is an occult ceremony in Egypt, with the seventh degree making him the Christ. Edgar Cayce said Jesus only became the Christ in his 13th incarnation after shedding his bad karma. Then you've got world religions like Baha'i that says Jesus was a manifestation of God. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather an enlightened man like the Buddha. Hinduism, with its many views of Jesus, does not even consider him to be the only God, but most likely a wise man or incarnation of God, much like Krishna. 
You have Islam that teaches that Jesus was merely a man and, yes, a prophet, but a prophet that's inferior to Muhammad, speaking at an event hosted by the Muslim Student Association at the University of North Texas. Council of American Islamic Relations Vice President Eric Meek told students, if Jesus were here, he'd be a Muslim. The Dalai Lama said Jesus was either a fully enlightened being or something else, but a very high specialized spiritual realization. Indian Hindu leader Mahatma Gandhi said, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. And then you break out of those religious boxes and you just look through history. President Thomas Jefferson said, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Prince Philip said, Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Fidel Castro said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Mikhail Gorbachev said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Malcolm X said, Christ wasn't white, Christ was black. The poor brainwashed Negro has been made to believe Christ was white to maneuver him into worshiping white men, a white Jesus, a white virgin, white angels, white everything, but a black devil, of course. Raleigh May, an American existential psychologist, said Christ is the therapist for all humanity. And Lakota Native American Indian tribe said Jesus is the buffalo calf of God. We got a lot of views out there. We got a lot of views. People are more than willing to adopt Jesus and the name of Jesus for their own purposes. But listen, there's only one Jesus Christ. And he's the one revealed here. And he's revealed here, according to John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, look again, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is the Son of the living God. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another wonder worker. The Son of David, Abraham's seed, the one who delivers us from captivity, the goal of the law, God in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to prisoners, proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That is Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of creation, the creator of all, the architect of the universe, the sovereign over all time. He always was, always is, and always will be, unmoved, unchanged, undefeated. He was bruised, he brought healing. He was pierced, he eased pain. He was persecuted, he brought freedom. He was dead, he brought life. He is risen, he brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world cannot understand him. The armies cannot defeat him. The schools cannot explain him. The leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees can't confuse him. The grave can't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Other religions can't replace him. And the world can't explain him away. He is light. He is love. He is goodness. He is kindness. He is gentleness. He is holiness. He is righteousness. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is pure. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging. And his mind is on us. He is our redeemer, our savior, our guide, our peace, our joy, our comfort, our Lord, and our life. That is who Jesus Christ is. That's who John teaches us Jesus Christ is. Not in those words. I gave the more biblical, bigger picture. But he is God come in the flesh. 
So that's the second question. Who does the teaching exalt? Where does the teaching originate? Who's it? What's the teaching exalt? Is it exalting self? Or is it exalting Christ? We live in a cultural moment that is marked and defined by satanic selfism. That is the goal of the antichrist, the anti-Christian spirit. Self. That's it. That's what it was from the beginning. Did God really say, I mean, you get to judge reality. You get to define your gender. You get to say what marriage is. You get to define your sexual ethics. Nobody else gets to tell you that. And if they do, hate speech. Shun them. Because we are protecting our God, which is ourselves. Don't you assault my God. I am my God. Number three, here's the third, third and final criteria. Who does the teaching attract? Who does the teaching attract? You can tell a lot about teaching by who's listening to it. Who's listening to it? And the mass approval is no sign for truth. Okay? We have to, we have to understand that. Who would argue that Jesus was the most faithful, loving, truth-telling, honest person that ever lived? And very, very few people believed him. Very, very few. So the question then becomes, who does the teaching attract? And John gives us three audiences here in verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, it's the Christians that he's writing to. In verse 5, it's the false prophets who have gone out from them. And in verse 6, it's the apostles, among whom is John, who is writing this letter. So notice verse 4. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We'll come back to that in a moment. But look at verse 5. He says, they, that is these false teachers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, who are operating under the spirit of Antichrist, who have gone out from these fellowship of Christians claiming to be the true Christians. He says, they, those false teachers, are from the world. They're from the world. That's their source. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. See, we can evaluate teaching by who is it attracting? Who is listening to it? Who is adhering to it? Who is clinging to it? He says, worldly teachers speak worldly things and build worldly audiences. We should not be surprised by this. They're recognizing who they are and what they already believe. Non-Christians love non-Christian thinking. Right? So it's, it's no surprise there. All right? So we also see, though, look at verse 6. It says, we, talking about the apostles and the Christians to whom he's writing, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us says, you want to know who, who is from God? Those who embrace apostolic doctrine. Those who embrace people who knew Jesus. These are the pe- this is the best friend of Jesus in the world. Don't you think he knows who he is? 
Don't you think he knows who Christ is? If anyone has integrity and merit to sign off on the authenticity of Christ, it's the Apostle John. This is a man who was held by Jesus, who was close to Jesus, who fellowshiped with Christ for three years and saw everything he did. He has validity. His testimony matters. <laughs> and his testimony carries more weight than anybody else's opinion about Jesus. Right? Don't, doesn't doesn't the, your, the, the best, your best friend, what they think about you, matter more than the stranger on the news show? the supposed college professor who's read all these books that prove that Jesus didn't ever live? I mean, don't you think that John is not a crazy man? Don't you think that he's not insane, that he's full of virtue and goodness and righteousness and love? He, for, for crying out loud, he's calling these people his beloved, his little children. He cares deeply for these people. He loves them with a great pastoral passion. And he says to them, we're from God. Whoever is from God listens to us. And whoever doesn't listen to us, they're not from God. They're from the world. Don't be deceived. Test every spirit. Don't believe every spirit, my, my beloved, my little children, my fellow believers, he says. We are from God. And that's how you know who the spirit of truth is and who the spirit of error is. So those are the three criteria John gives us. Where does the teaching originate? Who does the teaching exalt, or what does the teaching exalt, and who does the teaching attract? Now let's close, number three, talking about the comfort in rejecting false teaching, the comfort. You know, this is, this is important because I don't know about you, but I feel cultural pressure. I feel anti-Christian thinking. I feel it, and I feel hopeless against it. I feel like, how am I going to resist this? How am I going to continue to stand for Jesus? How am I going to continue to walk with him when the cost keeps getting higher and higher and higher? I see those men on the beach kneeled down, getting ready to have their heads taken off for Christ. I say, can I be there? Could I be there? Would I be there? And it may not ever get to that point, and I pray it doesn't. But we don't know. We, nobody ever thought Rome would become a beast state either. We don't know. We pray. We hope for gospel progress. We pray for revival. We preach the gospel. We live Christian lives. We strive to do justice. Living out our faith authentically and with integrity wherever God sends us. We don't have any control of those things. At least not much control. But there's somebody who does. And that's God. And so here's our comfort in rejecting false teaching. Look at verse 4 again, chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, and he's saying this to all of us this morning, all of you who are believers, all of those who are following Jesus, he says, little children, know this. You're from God, and you have overcome them. You have. It's not you will, it's you have. Issue's already settled. Issue's already settled. I can't get you to not believe on Jesus or believe in Jesus if I banged your head up against the wall 15 times. Stop believing in him. No, no, no. But you know why you won't leave him? You know why you will continue to walk with him? You know why you continue to hold to him? Because you've overcome. 
you have overcome. Now, how did we overcome? Just we got strength, we got willpower, we're better than everybody else? No, we're little children. We're beloved. It's not because we're strong, it's because he's strong. Notice what John says, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's our hope. He who is in us, in us, is greater than he who is in the world. Who is in us? Look back up to what he just said last week. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Have the Holy Spirit living in us. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have conquered. You are God's beloved. You are God's little children. The greater spirit, the Holy Spirit, is living in you, and he is greater than all the spirits in the world combined. Are false prophets wise? Yes, but our God is wiser. Is the world strong? Yes, but our God is infinitely stronger. Is Satan powerful? Yes, but he's on a leash and his head is crushed. This God is in you. We overcome false teaching because God is at work in us by his spirit to reject it. That's why. Because we have the spirit of truth. It's the same promise that Jesus gave to his original disciples in John chapter 14 through 16, that great treatise on the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives. And he talks to us and he says that, he will, that after he departs from this earth and is resurrected from the dead, he will send another counselor who will be with us forever, the Holy Spirit, who will lead and guide us into all truth. And when he's in us, and he's guiding us into truth, we are protected from error. So this sermon, dear brother and sister, is not about how you need to study the Bible more, although you do. You do. This is not about learning the cultural narratives and where they originate and how to fight them, although you do need to be armed for that. But that's not where your ultimate hope is. Your ultimate hope is not in your knowledge of God, it's in God's knowledge of you. Your hope is not in knowing all the spirits that are operating in the world, but knowing his spirit that lives inside of you and being confident that the one who called you and sealed you will guarantee and keep you for the day of redemption. That is the hope that we have. And that's the hope we need to have in leaving. We don't know where the winds of culture are going to blow, but we know where the winds of the spirit are going to blow. And he blows in us and on us and and, and in our assembly We are a temple of the Lord indwelt by his spirit. And so we can rest confidently in that. Worship team, if you'll come forward, I'm going to get ready to pray. And just want to remind us one more time, if you'll look over at 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. This is what Pastor Thad preached a few weeks ago when when John first addressed this issue of false teaching in his letter. And he reminded us of these things. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 through 27. I'm going to read these verses, and then we're going to close in prayer and worship. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and this is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the comfort of your word, the cautions that your word gives us, and yes, even the criteria that your word gives us for evaluating the things that we hear. How do we know who to believe? We know it by the voice of Jesus Christ present in that teaching, validated by your spirit. That is the spirit of truth. All else is from the spirit of error. So we thank you for our King, our Savior, our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have sent to guide us into all truth, to live in us, to abide in us. Help us, Spirit, to abide in you, even as you abide in us. And preserve us, keep us, make us diligent, make us wise, make us discerning as we walk through this life, seeking to live faithful, faithfully as exiles and strangers, looking forward to our homeland whose builder and maker is God. So help us to navigate this life uh, faithfully with your spirit's help and assistance and necessary influence upon us as we seek to discern truth from error. And we ask all this in the name of the one who is the truth, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.